Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, March the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. It's our wrap of the week. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined by Pat Leahy and Jack Organ jones to review proceedings. Pat, we were talking about Scotland on Wednesday, but this was a pretty significant week on the domestic political front as well. You're in Brussels, but it's been a busy enough week in, in Dáil Éireann. Yeah, it has. I mean, uh, it revolved uh, around uh, that vote on the ending of the eviction ban on the Sinn Féin motion. The motion was discussed on Tuesday. The vote was taken on Wednesday. This has been a very difficult period, I think, and actually, I think, damaging period for the government since the announcement that the uh, the eviction ban would end on uh, the at the end of the end of this month. So it ends, I think, uh, this day this day week or maybe tomorrow week. But I think the government is kind of stumbling into something that it is a little bit unaware of the the dimensions of it when it comes to the politics of it. They, I, I think, if the the opposition have called a tsunami of evictions takes place, however likely or unlikely that is, but if uh, if you at least get um, a big uptick in the number of people being issued with notices to quit, and of course a notice to quit isn't the same thing as as a, an actual eviction. The Taoiseach has been making that point here in Brussels uh, this morning. But uh, I still think the politics of all this, from the government's point of view, stinks. And the longer the opposition can keep it going... They will, and so we will have more votes uh, on it next week. There's a motion of no confidence put down by Labour. There's um, a rather cleverer, I think, device put down by Sinn Féin, which is uh, to table actual legislation so that the people who were able to, the independent TDs, I suppose, who were able to almost sort of hide behind the government's counter motion this week won't be able to do that next week and will have to vote specifically against a legislative measure which would extend the uh, the eviction ban. So I think it's all been very difficult for the government, notwithstanding the fact that they survived the motion and they will survive the motions next week. Apologies. There's some French people walking past uh, making uh, a bit of a racket as they go for their lunch. But I, I think it's a very difficult period for the government and that will continue next week. We'll leave Pat to his French people there for, for a moment, Jack. But it does seem to be the case, doesn't it, that certainly this week and probably next week as well, there's little um, there's little fear of the government running into you know serious problems with the motion of no confidence, for example. They seem to be solid enough with the support of, of various independents. They won the votes fairly comfortably this week. And so even if they're into under a little bit more pressure, as Pat suggested next week, they're they're pretty grand. Yes and no, really. Um so the, the margin was was fairly healthy this week. All right, fifteen votes. Um but I think that that belies a, a deeper issue, um, which is that the the shape, that is the composition and the size of the government majority in the doll, particularly on housing issues, is now a live matter that has to be considered. And their ongoing capacity to uh, comfortably win these things 
can't be taken as a given. And that while the the Sinn Féin motion and the government counter motion this week, they fairly took in their stride, and they'll probably take the motion of no confidence next week and the vote on the Sinn Féin legislation next week also in their stride. I think that this is the beginning of what we should expect to see, which is a, a series of sally forths from uh, the opposition probing the strength of that majority at any given time and at any opportunity. Um, it also suggests that I think that I think the most significant part of this week, and I'm sure we'll get onto this in, in more substantive detail, is the the principle that the coalition seems to have accepted, even if Leo Varadkar was saying that there was no formal agreement with the regional independent group. But the principle that they've accepted is that some form of policy setting power or some form of concessions on policy uh, can be made by the government to that group of floating independents upon whose support they may increasingly be reliant. Um, that I think is a significant development. It's almost like a kind of it's almost like a kind of shadow version of confidence and, su- and supply because their majority, their on paper majority, is so thin at the moment, down to just one TD. Uh, so I think that's that's a really interesting and and really kind of crucial development. And I think that more intangibly, and I, I'd withhold kind of final judgment on this until we see a kind of good series of, of polls that have been taken after the um, the decision to lift the eviction ban. But more intangibly, there's just a kind there's a kind of vibe shift underway. After the budget, the government really felt it was it was hitting its straps. You know, I mean, how could it not? It spelt, spent eleven or twelve billion or something like that. And notwithstanding a kind of bumpy start to Leo Varadkar's return to the Taoiseach's office, there was no there was no reflection really, aside from a little dip for Fianna Fáil. There's no reflection that, that was having an impact in the polls. And you know, the the most importantly, I think Sinn Fein had kind of continued this plateau. If this vibe shift manifests itself as as a polling knock, I think they'll really take that to heart. I was talking to one person this week who said that they hadn't seen the offices of the leaders this rattled in the term of the government. And I think that that could be really significant. Um, when you look at, at leadership level, if they're getting rattled, then they're perceiving uh, a weakness. Now, that's just one person's view, so we shouldn't put too much weight in it. But, you know, it's not. we shouldn't entirely discount it either. There's also the backbenchers aspect. You talked to backbenchers in around Leinster House this week, and of course they were fairly bullish because it was clear they were going to win this. But they don't like being put in, in these kind of positions. They don't like negative news cycles. They don't like things coming into their constituency clinics, and they don't like every time they go out on local or national media having to defend unpopular policies. And it looks like they're just going to have to do that time and again on housing issues. So I think that there is a really important, potentially, hinge in, in the kind of the lifespan of this government underway. And I think that, you know, we often talk about when we're discussing the, the kind of political controversy of the day, is this something that we're going to be talking about at the end of the year? And that's kind of a rough litmus test that we have as as political reporters. Um, I think this is not only something we'll be discussing at the end of the year, I suspect it'll be something that we are are going to be discussing at the end of uh, this government's life cycle and during the election. This vibe shift, Pat, uh, obviously it derives from the eviction ban decision. Obviously, the, the consensus, the majority view within the government parties was that they couldn't avoid making this decision at this time. Do you agree with that? And is there any way that they could have approached it in a different way that they wouldn't have dug quite as big a hole as they seem to have for themselves? 
Well, yes, I mean, Jack's responsibility on the political team is to be the interpreter of vibes. But uh, occasionally, occasionally I chip in on, uh, on, on vibe evaluation myself. So in answer to your question, I, 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 I think we'll probably have to wait uh, a few weeks to see how this plays out. But my, my guess is that this does mark a change of vibe, as you describe it, uh, for for the government because I think what is going to happen is that there inevitably there will be some evictions there will be difficult personal stories of people who are issued with uh, uh, issued with notices to quit who have nowhere to go and it only takes a couple of those stories to be brought out in the media to focus political attention on and I think as a result of lifting the eviction ban I think that uh, you know, culpability for this will increasingly be zeroed in on the government, you know, no matter what happens. And in the normal course of events in a property market, notices to quit are issued all the time. Some people are, uh, uh, some, some people are evicted. But when that happens at all now, I think, um, I think fingers are going to be pointed uh, at the government on it as a result of, uh, of the controversy. Was there another way of going about it? Yes. And this is the thing that has surprised me about the government's sort of just political preparations for this. We all thought that the ban was going to be extended, but with some for a short period of time and with some mitigations uh, to be put in place. So we thought it might go until the start of the uh, summer. And in the interim period, all the bits and pieces that the government has been scrambling to put in place would be prepared so that the government could then say, you know, we're lifting the ban in, in you know, two months' time or three months' time. During that three months, we will have prepared these uh, mitigating circumstances so, so as to ensure that people are not evicted into homelessness insofar as that uh, is possible. But that hasn't happened. And that has been the thing that surprised me on it. I think, you know, there's a, there's a broader question of the government's handling of the housing crisis, of course, but there's also the short-term question of, uh, of this particular issue. And to be honest, I think they've made a hames of it. So the Green Party lost Nasa Harrigan not for the first time in the term of this government, Jack. How much of a problem is this for the Green Party in particular? Well, I think it's a it's a problem for the government writ large, and I'll just I'll dwell on that for one minute before moving on to the Greens. I think that Pat is right. Like they, they mishandled the execution of what they themselves say was an unavoidable policy decision by not preparing themselves well enough, by not having this, you know, series of, of mitigating measures oven ready. Um and that has compounded a decision that was always going to be painted by the opposition as being more in the interests of landlords uh, than than those of tenants, and I think that in turn is made worse by you know interventions like the that that which the Taoiseach made this morning. Pat was at a doorstep with him over in Brussels, and he was articulating the difference between you know a, a notice to quit and an eviction. And you know while he is right in in point of fact, I think that you know this makes the government look like it has a tin ear for the very real difficulties that people are going through. And it makes it look like they, they can't understand that, you know, a notice to quit in and of itself, even if it doesn't arise in an eviction order given by the courts, is, is a really difficult thing for a household to go through. And that there is a large group of people out there who are getting these things. And even if you're not getting one, you know, you're, you're in a fairly tenuous form of tenure and that that is a large and growing group of, of the electorate. And so they, they've kind of mishandled this both in terms of how they've you know presented themselves and in terms of you know doing the politics, getting ready for it. And I think that if you look at how the Green Party have handled it, that's that's a good example of the politics not being prepared because they weren't able to square away 
all their all their backbenchers losing one and an open question playing out over the last week or 10 days over another. There's other examples of them not doing the politics well enough, not getting the preparations in place. The most obvious one being the fact they had to make a bunch of concessions to the regional independent group, but also um, the fact that this reform around nursing homes, uh, allowing nursing home residents to keep 100% of their income, wasn't adequately politically proofed within the coalition itself, as evidenced by the fact that Mary Butler, the Minister for Older People, told the Irish Times on Wednesday that she hadn't been consulted on this, she wasn't happy with it, and that she, I think today, on Friday, is meeting with Dara Bryan, the Minister for Housing, to hash this out and to thrash it out to a certain extent. So, you know, again, there's this sense that, you know, they haven't they haven't prepared well enough. Um, when you get into the Greens, I think the Greens are in a really tricky spot at the moment. Um, we had last week's uh, difficulties around uh, their head of communications issuing a, a, a bad tweet about NASA Hurricane before she was going out on broadcast, and then the leaked WhatsApp messages, um, you know, with people raising this, WhatsApp channels being locked and so on and so forth, and there was more of that over the weekend. And, like, why that matters is not so much what is being leaked, it's the fact that it's being leaked. It's the fact that, like, there is clearly unhappiness within the party more largely, and that this issue around housing and how NASA Hurrigan has been punished for voting against the government has reopened this old rift within the Green Party. And now you see Green Party councillors going out and being actively critical of the leadership and of the decision to remove the whip from NASA Hurrigan for 15 months and to take all her Oireachtas committee privileges off her because she's seen as being a particularly effective and diligent contributor uh, to Oireachtas committees. Um, I mean, I was talking to one councillor this morning who privately said, a Green councillor privately said, there needs to be a discussion on leadership and the future direction of the party. And I mean, that's a significant development because while Eamon Ryan, as we've said before, is, is, is comfortable in the position that he is within the parliamentary party, you know, the broader Green Party, I think, is, is not as happy a church as they might like to, to present. And, and the last week or so, the last couple of weeks has been evidence of that. And, and I think they have a broader problem as well. So if you look at, and I've been doing this over the last day or so, if you look at the, the polling performance currently of the Green Party and compare it against the uh, polling performance that they had, as according to the Irish Times, Ipsos MRBI exit poll in, in 2020, I think they have the beginnings of a little bit of a problem. If you look at how they did then and where they did well then and where they're polling well now or how they're polling in those key demographics now. So if you look at, for example, right, if you look at Dublin, usually a hotbed of kind of, you know, liberal progressive intent and, and somewhere where the Green Party does relatively well. In 2020, the exit poll suggested that they got 12.9% of the uh, the vote in Dublin. They're currently polling at 8%, so a fairly substantial uh, decrease there. If you look at the 18 to 24-year-old category, this is nationwide, the Green Party, according to the exit poll, got 14.4% of the, of the vote currently polling at 8% of the vote. And then if you look at that other, the second youngest age category, that of 25 to 34, the Green Party got 9.1% of the vote and a 25 to 34 current polling, according to February's Irish Times uh, poll, 5%. So I think that, as I say, they may have uh, the beginnings of a bit of a problem there. And Eamon Ryan was saying at the time of the Green Party conference last year that he expects that 10% of the electorate will vote Green. Now, whether that means voting for a party with Green tendencies or voting for the Green Party itself, he didn't quite uh, precisely describe. But like, I think, I think they have an issue here. 
And I think that, you know, they have an issue with, with making it clear that their main purpose in government, which is to, you know, achieve green reforms and environmental successes, if that's not landing with those key demographics that were very important to the coalition that saw them have a good result in 2020, uh, and it's coming against the backdrop of discord within the party um, and, you know, the issues with NASA Hurrigan, I think, I think they have an issue here that they have to address. So internal divisions, external pressure ramping up in dull votes and a heightened public perception of incompetence. That's not a good look, is it, overall, Pat? No, Hugh. It most certainly is. Uh, it most certainly is not. I see you draw on you draw on all your years of political analysis experience to to make that telling point. Yeah, of course, you know. And but I, you know, in a way, I, I I think you know what we have to try and do is kind of figure out, as Jack says, you know, is this still something we're talking about at, at the end of the year? Does this mark a turning? Uh, does this mark a turning point? I think there's a very real possibility that it does. Governments sometimes reach a stage that people just, sorry, babbling Italians walking past a, a present, but um, uh, governments sometimes reach a stage that, uh, that, that people almost switch off from them. And it doesn't matter what they do after that, because no matter what they say after that, people just aren't listening to them. Now, I don't think that this government is at that point yet. But maybe for some of those younger voters who uh, who Jack cites in those uh, in those numbers a couple of minutes ago, there maybe because of the housing issue, they are beginning to switch off from uh, from the government. And you know, if it becomes hard for the government to talk to you know people under forty or people people under forty who who don't own a uh, property, that's a heck of a chunk of the electorate to become uh, unavailable. For you, and, uh, and and you know, I think that there are there are obvious dangers, electoral dangers for for the government in that. Again, that's not to say this government is now uh, over; it's not. But it seems to me that they are in a very perilous position uh, right now, which we wouldn't have said, I think, at the start of this year or in the second half of last year. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Just before we do that, let me remind you, if you have not done so already, of the merits of taking out a subscription to irishtimes.com, Ireland's foremost newspaper, where you'll get coverage of both Irish and international affairs. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. Pat, staying with you in Brussels, because the agreement, the, the Windsor Framework Agreement, putting an end to division over the Northern Ireland Protocol between the EU and the UK, I, I gather was was signed or has been agreed officially. Uh, I take it all of Brussels is, is en fête as a result? You wouldn't believe the excitement uh, here, Hugh. Um, no, actually, nobody here has paid any attention to it whatsoever. Now, there is a line in the agreed conclusions of the uh, of the summit that welcomes this uh, welcomes this development and uh, certainly I think it was the case that people in Brussels were looking at that vote in the House of Commons during the week to see what sort of a majority that Rishi Sunak could uh, muster in favour of it. Now, as it turned out, it was a whopping majority. There was a bit of a rebellion on the Conservative benches, but I think there's very much uh, a sense in London and per- perceived here that, you know, this is essentially put to bed now as a... Two former prime ministers voted against it, I note. 
Indeed, and some other loons in the uh, in in the Tory party. It's a good way of identifying them, I think. You know, but uh, when prime ministers of the stature of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are uh, are standing against you, uh, I think you can take that as a reasonably uh, as a reasonably good sign. But I think there is obviously an ongoing issue for the British government and the Irish government with the rejection this week by Geoffrey Donaldson of the uh, uh, of the of the Windsor Declaration, voting against it in the House of Commons, announcing that they wouldn't, though he didn't say ever, uh, nor did he say not now, uh, go back into the Stormont institutions. So there is an expectation, I think, in both in, 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 in London and in Dublin, that Donaldson is playing something of a long game and that the institutions will not be suspended indefinitely. As to what the plan is, if they are suspended uh, in, indefinitely, and nobody has any firm indications insofar as we know as to what sort of timescale Jeffrey Donaldson is acting on, doesn't seem to me there's any sort of a plan uh, and uh, any sort of a plan B there. But certainly, as far as Brussels goes, this episode is now more or less closed. Newton Emerson, in our opinion pages this week, Jack suggested basically that, that Donaldson's plan anyway um, is to make it through the May local elections in Northern Ireland and then somewhat sourly uh, troop back in to Stormont at some point in the in the weeks or months after that. That seems pretty plausible, although there probably is still a question about whether, you know, whether he can avoid a, you know, a really serious split or a division in his own party to achieve it. But it doesn't seem unlikely. And in fact, it's not unlike the pattern of the way the DUP has reconciled itself to some things in the past. I think that's true. I mean, they have a they have a history of of you know strong uh, critiques, um, very vocal critiques, and then kind of getting on with it. And I suspect that may be where we end up here. Um, and I, I would I would share uh, the endorsement of our colleague Newton Emerson's uh, column. I think it was in yesterday's Irish Times on on Thursday, and people should go and read it. Um, I think that like they will be given enough runway for that as well. I suspect. There was a little bit more impatience I picked up um, following the the Westminster vote um, this week. Uh, I just noted that that the Taoiseach said it was it was disappointing, which is the the most kind of incremental ratcheting up of the of the rhetoric around uh, the DUP from from the Irish government, but not a systemic fundamental departure from their overall approach, which is which is to give them them time and space to 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 see the light um and i think that ultimately you know you're right i think they are likely to to come back in after the after the the local elections um because they're they're looking over their shoulder aren't they at the uh the traditional union's voice and they can't they can't risk being seen to be soft on the issue just before a, a an electoral outing but like will we see uh will we see the the sort of institutions sitting again before the end of the year i suspect we might what do you think you I think he will definitely try to go for it. And I think probably the majority of the party will go with him. But he might lose, you know. It's interesting that that the hardest wing of his party elect, in terms of electoral representatives are the people in in Westminster, uh, rather than necessarily the people in the Assembly. And maybe that's because, isn't what they say is, you know, a man will do anything if his salary depends upon it. So maybe it's something to uh, something to do with that. I agree entirely. I think there's also pretty clear polling uh, in the North that suggests that you know, people want the Assembly back up and running. They want, uh, they see there's been changes made to the protocol and there is a demand uh, amongst people across all communities in uh, in the North to get their political representatives back in working for them. And I think ultimately that exerts its own, uh, its own pressure 
on Donaldson as well. I mean, the thing that I heard, and this was discussed an awful lot, I was in Washington last week um, for, uh, for and, and in New York for St. Patrick's Day events, and it was very northern-focused for, uh, for the entire period across the, the two cities. Jeffrey Donaldson and uh, other unionists were there as well, of course, and uh, apologies, it's goose-stepping Prussians at this stage. Um, but uh, the question that was asked on several occasions, you know, in, c- in conversations on this is like, what is his alternative? You know, what does he do if he, you know, if he doesn't go back in? And, you know, nobody able, seemed to be able to figure, it, figure that one out. Seems to me that if we keep this podcast going long enough, we can get every European stereotype uh, uh, under the sun going past behind you. Uh, so I'm working on that. I'm working on that, Hugh. Let's, let's keep going with it. Can I ask you just in terms of what you're doing there, Pat? And you said you doorstepped uh, Leo Varadkar, and he made his comments about um, about evictions. In your close observation of the man, he seems uh, he seems to be getting more loose lipped than ever, or speaking his mind, or you know, speaking thoughts out loud that perhaps should be kept to himself. Is that is that unfair? But it just seems to be happening an awful lot at the moment. Well, personally, Hugh, this is a trend that I'm very much in favour of, if it is as you uh, uh, as you describe it. Um, yeah, he, he made some pretty frank comments this morning um, uh, about the, the nature of uh, the nature of evictions, pointing out that you know people aren't evicted by notices to quit. You know, they're going to be evicted by court orders. Um, and, uh, you know, he was made a bit of a gaffe, I suppose, last week in Washington where he made a sort of a, you know, depending on your view, either clumsy or, you know, quite good joke about uh, interns in Washington during the Clinton uh, administration, which he subsequently very quickly apologised uh, for. But so, you know, maybe uh, is he becoming a little more loose-lipped than usual? Well, I mean, if you remember Mr... Varadkar's rise to prominence and rise to the leadership of his party and the office of Taoiseach was accompanied by his widespread sense that he, you know, he kind of shoot, shoots from shoots from the hip. It, it's Spaniards uh, from the West Siesta. Uh, but, but it was very much based on a sense that, you know, he wasn't really like, uh, you know, careful like other politicians. He, he, you know, he says it as it was and, you know, he spoke his mind and that. And that was always seen as very much a political plus for Leo Varadkar in the period of his ascent towards high office. I suppose, though, when you get there, speaking your mind and speaking frankly, you know, can have its own, uh, you know, can have its own perils but um but as i say there is a sense with politically some political leaders isn't it i mean you've, you've seen it with I, i'm not making this direct comparison but you've seen it with donald trump and with we're about to be joined on the podcast by the minister for public expenditure who is uh, the latest group to to walk past would you uh, would you like to say hello to our podcast yeah, uh, minister I, I, i'd never want to interfere with a live broadcast <laughs> he's moving on all right there's an opportunity for your irish cultural stereotype now he's probably going for a few pints yeah yeah He's making drinking gestures at me. No, he's, he's not. But, um, really. He's probably gone, so you probably can't ask him this. I'd be interested to know his view on this. You know the way that they say, let Trump be Trump and let Boris be Boris. Is there a little bit of let Leo be Leo here? I thought you were going to say let Pascal be Pascal there. But, but um, yeah, maybe there is. Yeah, maybe that's what's... I, I do think that there is certainly a sense in Fine Gael that, uh, that Leo, Leo Varadkar is in the make or break period of his political career, that the transition from Taoiseach in the last government to Tonishta in this government wasn't one that he, he found easy. 
um, uh, that, that, you know, Fine Gael was not flourishing uh, in government. And the hope was that when he regained the Taoiseach's office, you know, that, that that would sort of turbocharge Fine Gael's fortunes. I think the jury's pretty much out on that at the moment. But certainly whatever about letting Leo be Leo, uh, I, I think that there is certainly an effort underway in the, in the Taoiseach's office to make a concentrated effort to use the position of Taoiseach to advance, you know, not just the country's fortunes, but Fine Gael's uh, political fortunes as well. All right, we shall leave it there. But as always, we round up with uh, with a few articles from the Irish Times over the last week or so. Each of us picks one. I'm going to go first this Friday. I'm going to choose an opinion piece by Finn McRedmond, which uh, excited quite a lot of um, reaction. Uh, I would say 97% of it extremely negative uh, on on social media over the over the last 24 hours or so. She was really responding to um, the first speech as leader of the Social Democrats in the Dole by Holly Kearns a week or so ago, um, where Holly Kearns talked about being a member of the first generation that would be Irish generation that would be worse off than their parents. And that that line did really seem to strike a chord with a lot of people. And Finn is uh, arguing against it, really, and pointing out a little bit like uh, if you're familiar with the writings of the, the author Stephen Pinker, the suggestion that we do actually live at a time when it's better to be alive now than it was in any previous generation that we're more prosperous and we're all the rest of it. But I don't know. I don't know what either of, of, of you think about this. This is a line that's resonated in other political systems over the last few years, that sense that the, the project has failed in the United States, in the Rust Belt, in the in the north of England. And then more recently, there's a kind of generational thing with millennials and Gen Zers saying that baby boomers and Gen Xers are pulling up the ladder behind them. I think it's something we we might dig into a little bit more that idea over the next over the next while politically because it does seem quite potent. What do either of you think? I think that'd be I think that'd be a good idea. I mean, in general, older people always give out uh, that younger people are uh, feckless and irresponsible and are unprepared to make the sort of sacrifices for self advancement that they themselves did, while uh, younger people always uh, give out about uh, their elders. Um, so yeah, uh, I, but I, I I do think there is there are polit these these things do uh, constitute political undercurrents that are especially important at the moment. And often, I think you have to view that through the prism of the uh, of the housing crisis, which is not something that we've seen to this extent uh, before, and is something that impacts disproportionately uh, uh, on those uh, on those younger voters. So uh, I do think there's politics. And there, I think, you know? Jack, I mean, I, I, I don't know what you think of this. I think that's where, where, where Finn's argument uh, falls down, because the data is there, that the way our society is structured, where home ownership has traditionally been such an important part of kind of building prosperity over the course of a lifetime. And it seems that the younger generation now are being excluded from that opportunity. Yeah, uh, look, I think in this, as in many things, it depends on the, the scope of the question you're asking. I mean, like, yes, if you're going to uh, look at the Stephen Pinker view, I forget the name of that book, but I did read it back the day when it was when it was published. Like, if you take the the grand expanse of human history, it's true that we're less likely to be killed by marauding uh, invaders now, you know, we're less likely to get dysentery and so on, and that's that's good. But I suppose the the more immediate fear um, is that there's a generation of young people who are locked out and so on and so forth. But like the political volatility of that, like Pat was talking about how older people always give out about younger people, and younger people always give out about older people, and that's true, and that and ever ever has it been and 
it may always be the case that that is true. But the, the, the key question here is, bear with me on this, is whether younger people are becoming older people. Not in a chronological sense. I can attest that you do get older as time goes by. But in terms of their quality of life, their assets, the security of their tenure, and I think most, most vitally, their political outlook. Because there is this truism, and it's well-rounded in the data, that as you get older, you kind of get more comfortable and get a bit more conservative, and you have more of a stake in the system, and you're less likely to vote against the system. You have an interest in perpetuating the system. And if that stops, if that kind of younger group of now fairly geriatric-looking millennials in their mid-30s, and even into their early 40s, if they don't start acting like older people, well then, the consequences for the system for mainstream politics, are pretty severe. I am confirmed in my view that this is a subject we should devote a whole podcast to at some point, and we will we definitely find some young that. people. Half, what have you been reading? Possibly an entire series. <laughs> definitely, yeah. A year of podcasts. Uh, God knows how many Europeans would walk past behind you on that time, Pat. Pat, what have you been reading? Well, I was reading, uh, I, I, this morning I was reading Justine McCarthy's uh, In Praise of Johnny Sexton, and uh, which I, I didn't disagree with uh, a word of, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm minded to note uh, Fintan O'Toole's uh, reflections. Well, these are two of our heavyweight political columnists who are both writing about rugby uh, this week, and Fintan O'Toole writing about how he had fallen in love with, the, despite his class prejudices uh, against rugby, had fallen uh, fallen in love with this, uh, uh, with this Irish rugby team, and he ascribed the credit for this to uh, Andy Farrell, uh, the head coach. Uh, I, I, I posit uh, another, um, uh, another possibility, another explanation as well, is that maybe Fintan O'Toole has actually become middle class and uh, therefore that's why he's really fallen in love with uh, uh, rugby rather than because a working class North of England fella is, uh, is, is managing them to significant success. In his defence, Fintan is on the record as, as uh, conceding the fact that he has been middle class for a terribly long time now. Uh, Jack, what have you been reading? So uh, I picked out a, a piece by Mark Paul, our London correspondent, um, who takes us on a whirlwind tour of the uh, the annual press and political reception. Or rather, that's the opening, uh, is the annual press and political reception at the Irish Embassy in Belgravia. Um, and I liked it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because uh, it, it, it kind of gets into the personage and outlooks and actions of Martin Fraser, the current um, Irish ambassador to, to London. And he's he's a person I've always kind of found endlessly interesting. Um, when myself and Hugh O'Connell of the Irish Independent were writing our book about COVID, Martin Fraser emerged as this kind of central personality that, you know, does not have a, a big public profile and, you know, has been in the cockpit uh, steering the state response and advising those who are politically responsible for the state response at some pretty key moments, whether it be the financial crisis, uh, Brexit, uh, and the pandemic. And, you know, he's a kind of personification, I suppose, of, of the power of, you know, the deep state or the civil service or whatever, and, and someone who has an instinctive understanding of how to play those power games uh, and how to kind of, uh, you know, advance the, the interests of the state, I suppose. So I think that it's just, a, it, it's, it's an interesting little snippet. Into, into how he's doing his business over in London. Uh, and I suppose more significantly in the medium term, it, it's looking at who is Steve Baker um, and, and the, the particularly interesting intervention that he made when he kind of did a bit of a mea culpa over how he and how the, the, the British government in general had conducted its, itself across Brexit and, and the kind of firestorm that that set off behind the scenes in London and the various bollockings that he got arising from it. And I, I think it just really got into the the personality of, you know, 
who is someone who is a clearly very interesting man, Steve Baker, may may have a, a bigger political impact here. He already has a big political footprint here, may have a bigger political footprint here in the years to come. And, you know, pulled it all together very nicely and, and colourfully. So I, I heartily recommend it. He's a fascinating sort of character, Steve Baker. I always, I'm always, I'm always interested to to read more about him. We are going to leave it there because Pat is going to have to go off and join the the Dutch and the Portuguese and the Hungarians and the Finns for his own for his own lunch. Um, but thanks very much to Pat and to Jack for joining us today. Thanks also to Aideen Finnegan and our engineer JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon, indeed. But until then, thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>